The scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 25. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the, the members of his household? This is the word of the Lord. The passage that was just read to you uh, brings us to a new part of the book of Matthew. We've been going through the book of Matthew, looking at the big blocks of teaching that Jesus gives us, gives his disciples for how he wants us to live, how he wants his followers to live. And the more famous block that we've just spent weeks going through, the Sermon on the Mount, was mainly about how Christian disciples would relate to each other. It was mainly about how to create a community, a Christian community, and how how believers should relate to one another inside that community. But now, starting with this passage and the ones we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, 
Now Jesus turns around and says, but now here's how I want my disciples to relate to the world. And this passage, part of the reason we gave you such a long one is this was probably considered essentially a manual. Uh, This is a very long version of it. Mark chapter 6 is a shorter version of it. Luke chapter 10 has a medium-sized version of it. It was a kind of manual. It was Jesus teaching on how to move into a new town as Christian disciples or into a new neighborhood or into a new city and begin to do mission, to begin to do Christian ministry. And therefore, there's actually too much in it to even deal with. And there are some unanswered questions. For example, number uh, verse 23, Jesus says, you will not finish going through all the towns of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And actually, there's a great deal of debate about what that means. Is that his resurrection? It could mean that. Uh, it could mean his second coming. It probably doesn't mean that. It's, I'm not going to go there. We've got too many other things to say, and you don't need to understand that verse in order to understand the whole passage. The whole passage is about, first of all, how we are to share the compassion of Jesus. That's the first part, verses 5 to 15. Secondly, how we are to share the offense of Jesus. That's the second part, verses 16 to 23. And then thirdly, where we are to get the power to do that. And that's in the last couple of verses, 24 and 25. How we share the compassion of Jesus, how we share the offense of Jesus, and then how to get the power to do that. First of all, sharing the compassion of Jesus. Uh, this passage is, un, uh, is, is not understandable unless you realize it follows on directly from the end of chapter 9. And at the end of chapter 9, Jesus has gone into the villages, and he has begun a ministry. And we're told he went everywhere preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. See, the same basic things that the disciples are sent out to do. Preaching, speaking, telling people the gospel, and then healing, touching their bodies, touching their needs, showing, uh, uh, helping them in that way. And then verse 36 of chapter 9, Jesus, we're told, and when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What is, when Jesus looks at the human race, what is his main fundamental basic response? And the answer is basically compassion. Oh, yeah, he gets mad at the money changers, and he calls the the Pharisees white and sepulchers, and of course, and we'll get to that in a second. But the fundamental, the default mode, you might say, of Jesus' attitude, his tone, is compassion. And you see that in the fact that when so often he looks at the human race and he calls us sheep. Now, sheep are the most clueless of all animals. Sheep are always getting lost. They're always eating the wrong things. So many of their problems are self-inflicted. And even though um, sheep are stupid and they are, well, let's, let's be honest, they're dumb and dirty. And that's the human race. And yet in the end, even though sheep are destructively foolish and they do remarkably bad things and, they, and, and so many of their problems are self-inflicted, in the end, you can't really hate sheep. <laughs> you can't hate them. You know, you can, you, can, you can disdain them, you can laugh at them, you can hold your nose, but you don't hate them. And Jesus doesn't hate people. He doesn't come ultimately, he doesn't come primarily in condemnation. And that's said in many ways in many places. But right here you see the fundamental stance of Jesus Christ toward the needs of the human race is one of compassion. 
And then after he, and, and what does he do? He tells them the truth, he preaches, and he touches them and heals them and gets them involved in their practical needs. And then in chapter 10, he turns around and takes all of his trainees, all of his 12 disciples, and says, now you do it. And he basically gives them the very same ministry that he's had. And, of course, it should be done with the same motivation. And even though Matthew 12, uh, pardon me, Matthew 10, it's only the 12 disciples, and Mark 6 is the same way, in Luke chapter 10, he sends out 70, which most commentators and most Bible students believe is a, uh, you know, it's the perfect number, 70. And therefore, what we're really seeing here is Jesus is saying, all my followers, all my disciples are to share in my mission. Now, what do we learn from this? Three practical applications. Number one, uh, you know, if you're a Christian believer here today, you either go to Redeemer or you hopefully you go to some other church somewhere. And this is an incredibly challenging passage because, first of all, it tells us that the mission of any particular Christian community, the stance it should have toward its city or its town, is one of a remarkable number of complex balances that should be struck. Do you see how many balances there are in this passage? Let me just run down a few. First of all, the attitude. As we already said, they don't go just telling people the truth. They go healing. And, and, and you know, Jesus fed the hungry, and he raised the dead, and he touched the lepers. The lepers were not just uh, uh, physically uh, diseased, but they were also socially ostracized. And he touches them, and he brings them into community. And the fundamental, as I already said this before, the fund, our fundamental way of approaching the world should be one of compassion. We should go in servant mode, not condemnation mode. That should be the fundamental mode, the tone. Is that, is, is it for you, for me, for us? But on the other hand, look, at the same time it says, when they won't listen to you, Shake the dust off your feet when you leave that town or home, verse 14. That is a really strong statement because what the Pharisees did, what the more observant Jews did, who were always observing all the ceremonial laws and all the clean laws, is that if they had to go to a Gentile town or a Gentile home, they routinely would come out of the house or come out of the town and they would shake the dust off their feet. It was their way of saying, you are unclean, and it was a rebuke. It was a rebuke. For Jewish preachers, that's who these are, to do that to a Jewish town was an incredibly strong rebuke. And what that means is, here's that balance. We are supposed to be coming in servant mode. We're supposed to be coming to touch and heal people. We're supposed to be coming not in condemnation mode. They're sheep. We're supposed to come in compassion mode. And yet, we are unapologetic about the truth. We're unapologetic about the call to repent and, and to talk to people about the consequences of not hearing the truth. Do we have that balance? Or here's the second balance I can see is the one we've already referred to, word and deed. Preaching, calling people to faith, and loving and pouring yourself out and caring for the needy, caring for the poor, caring for the marginalized. That, again, is an incredibly difficult uh, uh, thing to combine in the same church. And I'll, I'll, let me press a little bit here. Some churches love to tell people the truth and call people to conversion. But when it comes to really getting involved in people's lives, they say, well, it's too expensive and shouldn't the government be doing that? On the other hand, you've got plenty of churches that are basically, oh, we just love everybody and we're so they're social service agencies. 
They're just community centers. Do they call people to repentance? Oh, no, we wouldn't want to do that. But both of those models are wrong. This balance of word and deed, this balance of straight talking and yet compassion and and servant mode. Another balance, by the way, has to do with money. Did you look carefully? Whenever you have ministry, money's involved. And look at the balance. On the one hand, it says, verse 10, take no bag for the journey, sandals or staff, for the worker is worth his hire. What means is the people you're ministering to support you. And that's actually kind of what the downtown challenge was all about. So you want, to, you want us to minister in downtown? Well, then you need to give. So, you, you know, the money has got to be there. On the other hand, so in, on the one hand, there's support, there's money. On the other hand, no extra. No extra. Um, over and over in these passages, Matthew 10, Mark 6, uh, and Luke, it says that the people who do ministry shouldn't expect to be living all that high. They shouldn't be extravagant. That, you know, you shouldn't expect that this is a great way to make a living. It's not a particularly great way to make a living. You see the balance? On the one hand, not ostentation, not extravagance. On the other hand, yeah, you know, it, you've got to give. If you want to do money, money is involved. See that balance? Here's one last balance, and that is, on the one hand, Jesus wants you to go to all the villages. Go to all the villages. There's no place that doesn't need the gospel. And yet... He's still strategic. Notice at the top, he talks about going to Israel first, and then at the bottom, verse 18, then the Gentiles. He says that when you go into town, look for a a home where the people are receptive to you and go there and stay there because that person's a bridge to the rest of the village. Uh, Paul, when he went to a town in the book of Acts, which we'll look at next year, uh, when Paul went to a town, uh, he preached to everybody, but, but... what he did was he went after especially the God-fearers. You know who the God-fearers were? God-fearers were not Jews, and they weren't Greek pagans. They were Gentile converts to Judaism. And because they were Gentiles, yet converts to Judaism that believed the Bible, they were a bridge both to the Jews and to the pagans. And therefore, what this is saying is, though we should do our ministry everywhere, there is some place for strategy in doing ministry. And this balance, not overly technique, you know, te- uh, not, not getting overly into technique, but at the same time, strategy. Not, uh, not, it's not somehow saying, oh, it's not going to take any money, but on the other hand, not being extravagant. Uh, word, deed, all these balances are very hard, very hard to strike. And yet Jesus calls every Christian community doing ministry in a city to strike those balances. Another thing we learn here that should humble us really deeply is the principle that comes out. You, you know, I don't know, it's a little, a little bit startling when you read it, but you tend to go by and not think out the implications for yourself. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, if you preach the gospel to a village and they won't listen to you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Now, Jesus is invoking a principle that should humble everybody in this room, no matter who you are. Why is it that Sodom and Gomorrah will not be held as responsible on this judgment day as that village? Because they never got anybody to come preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ is saying is the more knowledge you've got, the more God holds you responsible to act on that knowledge. And for example, I mean, probably the best place where this principle is laid out is uh, Luke 12, 48. 
from whom much is given, much will be required. From whom much is given, much will be required. Now, you're sitting here listening to one more sermon. One more sermon. You're just getting a little better information. Hopefully, it'll be a little clearer. It'll be a little bit more uh, immediate to your, to your, your conscience and your mind and your heart how you should live. Do you realize what you've done to yourself? Do you realize what I'm doing to you? If you don't act on that, you're responsible for that. When, um, if you look at somebody, look, if, you, if you've had a relatively good family life and you've had a relatively good schooling and you've, had, you've gone to a good church and you've got a pretty good amount of knowledge, as say a Christian, uh, and you, you've, you're living pretty comfortably, uh, don't you dare be God, Job's friends. You know what Job's friends did? They said, look at all the ways in which God's blessing us. We're better than everybody else. That's, that, everything's going right in our life because God must, we're, we're better than everybody else. What God wants to know is what are you doing with the knowledge I've given you? What are you doing with that nice home? What are you doing with those resources I've given you? What are you doing with them? Uh, I was talking with Abe earlier about this. Actually, I talked to him in the middle of the 915 sermon too. Uh, James chapter 3 verse 1 says, let, let not many of you be teachers because teachers will be judged more severely. And what that means is if Abe and I have taken a course, for example, in which we studied Galatians 5 on the fruit of the Spirit, and if we have a little more, if we have more knowledge of what the Bible means by the word love and of joy and of peace and of patience and of faithfulness and humility and self-control, if we know a little bit more about that, if it's more vivid to us, we know more about it, we're supposed to be exhibiting it more. Don't let many of you be teachers. By the way, we, we do need teachers. And so, but <laughs> you're, supposed to, you're supposed to just be humbled by this. You be humbled by this. Your privileges, your knowledge. I mean, it's not like, oh, you, what are you saying? Aren't we all saved? Yeah, we're all saved, but God's our father. And you know what a good father or mother does with kids? You look at them and you say, because of all the privileges you've got, you've got a responsibility. Of course, the father's going to say that. And he's saying it to you right now. Let that humble you. But one more application, and it's the main application, the main thing to drive home from this first part. There should be no consumer Christian. Jesus says, here's my ministry, and every other person who names the name of Christ, he says, needs to be on that ministry too. Now, the reason why I use the word consumer is this. Recently, uh, a sociologist named Arlie Hochschild wrote a book called The Outsourced Self, and in the outsourced self, she makes a point that actually has been made by sociologists and a lot of other um, you know, social analysts for at least 20 or 30 years, and that is this. It says, uh, because we're busy, because we're socially disconnected, because families are weaker than they used to be, communities are weaker than they used to be, people move all over the place in order to you know, follow their career. Therefore, every place we live, we live in, in communities much thinner than, say, 50 years ago. Fifty years ago, families lived closer together. People lived closer to where they grew up. Uh, there was more extended families. And in those days, and which means in most of history, so many things that today we hire professionals to do for us happened organically through community. How do you find someone to marry? 
How do you find, how do you raise your children? How do you even choose a name for your children? Uh, Arlie Hochschild points out that there's a growing, there's a growing profession called namology. You know what name- a namologist is? A person you hire to help you name your child. <laughs> now, I'm not making fun of it, and she's not making fun of it. What she's trying to say is there's never been a society in history that was more likely to come to church and to say, I pay the professionals to do it. Don't ask me to get involved with the poor. That's only for experts. Don't ask me to open a ministry up. Don't ask me to understand theology enough so that I can actually communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to my friends in a coherent way in a pluralistic and secular society. Don't ask me. And Jesus is saying, I am asking you. He did not let his 12 apostles observe while he did the ministry. He didn't let other people observe as the 12 apostles did the ministry. Everybody's called into it. Everybody. Everybody to open their mouth, everybody to share the gospel with their friends, everybody to be involved in people's needs, everybody. And you see, the, the, a consumer society says, I'm busy and I'm disconnected, so I'm going to hire a professional to do it. And there's never, ever been a time in history where you're more likely to come to a church like Redeemer and to say, I'm here to get inspiration, I'm here to just help, get help. But I, I mean, I don't have the time, I don't have the money to get involved like that. And the answer is, you're called to. Ephesians 2, 10 says, you are his workmanship created by God for good deeds that he has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Do you know what that means? You're sent. You may not even know you've been sent, but if you're a Christian, you've been sent. And that means not just your spiritual gifts, but your race, your gender, your age, your, your experiences, and even your failures perfectly prepare you to minister to certain people. Or, put it this way, there are some needs that only you can meet. There are some hands that only you can hold, and there are some demons that only you can cast out because of who you are. But you have to be involved. You have to give. You say, I'm too busy, but you've been sent. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to come into your life. I'm going to do this and that that you may be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that, I'm sorry, he works that way with everybody. So he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Now get out. <laughs> get out where? Somewhere I'll show you. Leave everything that's familiar. Get out of your comfort zone. Get out of your, your, your father's uh, home. Just get out. That's how it works. I'm going to bless you. Get out. Don't you, everybody in the world, this culture says you're here by accident. You're, you're a chemical accident. Martin Heidegger says that the nature of modern human life is gevorfen, is characterized by gevorfenheit, my favorite uh, German word, means thrownness. You were just thrown into the world, but that's not true. According to what the Bible says, you've been sent. You've been gifted. You've been crafted. You've been prepared to do ministry and to do mission. Don't be too busy for it. Don't think that this is a place where the professionals do it. Now, that's the first part. We are to share in the compassion of Christ. But, warning, warning, verses 16 to 23, when we do that, we need to be prepared to share in the offense of Christ. Now, from verse 16 on down, it gets really pretty sobering and kind of grim. And it talks about the reality of pushback, the reality of hostility from the world to the mission. No matter how compassionate you are, no matter what you do, since you are telling people the truth, 
you are calling them to repentance. No, we got to, you know, there's going to be pushback, and there can even be persecution. But now, there's a couple shoes have to drop. Notice in a place like verse 23, when you are persecuted in one place, go to another. <laughs> Practical. Or verse 16, look, verse 16, I am sending you like sheep among wolves, okay? Therefore, be shrewd as snakes. And I think, by the way, and, and as innocent as dove, which, is, which uh, it would be a good sermon right there. Um, isn't that amazing? What he's saying is, of course, I want you to be innocent. I don't want you to lie. See, innocent as doves. But be shrewd. Do not be unnecessarily offensive. Think about what you're saying. Be careful. There's going to be pushback. There's going to be hostility. Don't make it worse. Don't, don't, don't seek it. Don't invite it. And, of course, the main point, though, is verse 22. All men will hate you because of me. And, by the way, what that means is make sure that they hate you because of Jesus. Not because you're not shrewd. Not because you're stupid. Not because you actually don't leave when you're being... You know, see, verse 23 says, if they're, you know, if they're you know, angry with you, don't sit there and say, oh, I feel so noble when I'm being persecuted. I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to be so valiant for truth that I'm going to laugh at everybody. I'm going to, I'm going to despise all the other Christians that aren't as persecuted as me. None of that. Boy, this passage doesn't breathe anything like that. You know, that martyr, that martyr complex. Nothing like that. But here is the point. Verse 22. All men will hate you because of me. And what Jesus is saying is, my, he's not saying that every single human being hates Jesus and will hate Christians. Of course, it's obvious. Why would there be any Christians? I mean, obviously, people can be attracted too. But what he's saying is my offensiveness is pervasive and strong across the, the face of the human race. And, it's, and if you identify with me, you're going to get a lot of heat. Now, why is Jesus so offensive? Isn't that an amazing statement? And here's, here's a couple of reasons why he is offensive. Here's just a few. One is he's offensive because of the enormous nature of his claims, his enormous claims. Jesus is always saying things like, before Abraham was, I am, taking the divine name. When he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, just casually mentioning that, yeah, I've been around from all eternity. <laughs> or remember even last week, if you were here, it says, on the last day, on Judgment Day, people will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? And do In other words, everybody on Judgment Day is going to come to him. That's his claim. He's the judge of all the earth. He created the world. He's the God of the world. He's the judge of all the world. Now, when you have claims like that, what does that do? The reason it's offensive is it pushes us. Nobody wants, to, nobody wants this, but his claims push you to extremes. The only way to be consistent is to be extreme. You either have to say, I have to live completely for him. He has to be the highest priority of my life. He's got to be the reason why I get up in the morning. Every single decision I make, everything I do, should be done to please and honor him. Everything. Or I either do that or I need to run away from this man screaming. Screaming because I'm angry, you know, at him being such a liar or just screaming. Uh, in Flannery O'Connor's uh, great short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, uh, the, the central character actually is the misfit. He's a, he's a criminal and he's killing people. And at one point he explains why he's so mean. And this is what he says. 
He says Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, and he shouldn't have done it. He thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw everything away and follow him. And if he didn't, then there's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best you can by killing someone or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. That is a more consistent response to the claims of Jesus Christ than to come to church and say, I believe in him, but you don't center your whole life on him. He's offensive because he forces us to extremes. We have to throw every what the misfits say. There's nothing to do. If, he's, if he did what he said, there's nothing for you to do but throw everything away and follow him. Radical. That's offensive. But there's another reason why Jesus is so offensive, and that is not just what he says about himself, but what he says about how you can be saved. Jesus comes and says something so different than every other religious founder. Every other religious founder says, here's what you have to do. Here's Buddhism's eightfold path. Here's the five pillars of Islam. Every other founder of religion comes and says, here's what you have to do in order to be saved. Here's what you have to do to connect to God. Here's what you have to do. And Jesus says, you can't do it. You can't do anything. You're, you're awful. You're terrible. You're a sinner. You're weak. You have nothing with which you can merit salvation. I've got to do it all for you. I've got to do it all for you. I'm not a teacher come to tell you how to save yourself. I'm a savior come to, to save you. That is the most insulting of all of the claims of every religion. Every other religion gives you more credit. Christianity gives you none, none. And if you think Christianity basically, if all religions are basically calling people to do the same thing, you haven't even begun to think about that. Yet you, have, you haven't read them or you haven't thought about them. When George Whitfield, the great 18th century Anglican British preacher, uh, was preaching the gospel, and, he, and one person who became a Christian, one of uh, his converts, as you might say, was Lady Huntingdon, who was a member of the aristocracy. And Lady Huntingdon then was constantly trying to bring her aristocratic and noble friends from the nobility to hear this gospel preacher preaching that you have to be saved by grace. She didn't get many people to come. And one of her friends, the Duchess of Buckingham, wrote her a stiff letter turning down her invitation to come hear George Whitfield preach and explain why she would never do it. And this letter has come down to us, and here's what she says, quote, It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your own ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Now, she was offended. Why? She said, I don't want to be told that I have the same awful heart, to have a heart as sinful as the common wretches of the earth, so I have to be saved by grace just like those people? She says, this is highly offensive. Yeah. It's absolutely offensive. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm not coming as a teacher to tell you how to save yourself. I'm a savior come to save you because every one of you, no matter who you are, no matter how high your rank and good your breeding you need to be saved by grace, otherwise you're lost. And that's insulting. And if you put that together, what really insults, what's really offensive is, if Jesus is not just a teacher, but God himself, come to save you by grace, then he has to be 
the supreme way to salvation, right? See, every other religious founder says, I'm a teacher. But if Jesus says, no, no, I'm God. I'm not a teacher come to tell you how to find God. I'm God come to find you. If he is that, then he has to be the way to God. He has to be the true way of salvation. He has to be. And that offends people, especially in New York City, because that's an exclusive claim. It's saying you've got to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, that this is the way to God. And it, that sounds very exclusive. But it, of course, as I've shown you, it, it's, it's, a, it's intrinsically bound up with his claims as, as to who he is. So let me just conclude this part. If you identify with Jesus Christ, you will get heat because you will identify with him and therefore also be offensive to all the people that find Jesus offensive too. Now, the two groups of people let me address before moving on to the last point. Where do we get the power then to have this kind of compassion and to handle this kind of, uh, this kind of pushback? But first, two groups of people. First of all, surely some of you um, really dislike the idea. In fact, you might be very offended by the idea that you've got to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. That very idea, he said, that's bigoted, that's, that's narrow-minded. I find that very offensive. I'm really surprised that a person is getting up in the middle of New York City and even saying that right here in a microphone. Uh, j- just consider a couple things. Number one, if Jesus is who he said he is, then you have to believe that. And Christians, therefore, believe Jesus is the way to be saved, not because we think all other religions are stupid, but because we find the evidence compelling that he actually is the risen Son of God. And therefore, if you believe that, then you have to believe, not because, you, not because you're narrow-minded or bigoted, that's just the implication of the belief. Imagine there were a whole lot of scientists, well, in fact, there are. There's a lot of scientists around the world that are trying to find the cure for cancer, right? They're out there trying to find the cure. And if this one over here says, I have found the cure for cancer. None of the rest of you have got it right. You're all going down rabbit trails. I have found it. It works. This is the cure of cancer. Now, that person may be right, right? Or may be wrong, but he's not bigoted. Why would he be bigoted? Are you saying it's bigoted to say, I've got the truth? If he's got the truth, he's got the, tr- if he's got the cure, he's got the cure. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then he has to be the way of salvation, and if he's not, then he's, then he's not. But the point is, there's nothing bigoted about it. And besides that, if you say to a Christian friend, oh, it's okay to believe in Jesus Christ, just don't try to convert people out of their religion to yours. It's okay to believe in Jesus Christ, just don't try to convert people. Just remember this. The reason you think you shouldn't try to convert people is because you don't believe that Jesus, belief in Jesus is necessary for salvation, Right? The reason you don't think you have to go out there converting people is you don't believe it's necessary to believe in Jesus to be saved, right? Which is fine. You have a right to your view. But when you tell a Christian, believe in Jesus, but don't try to convert people, what you're trying to do at that moment, as it were, is convert the Christian to believe what you believe, namely, that you don't have to believe in Jesus to be saved. And therefore, please realize that you are doing to the Christian what you're telling the Christian they can't do to anybody else, which is you're trying to get them to change their beliefs for yours. See, it's impossible not to say, I would like you to change your mind because the way I'm looking at things is better than the way you're looking at things. We have to do that every day. In fact, if you even say, don't convert people, you're doing it. And for believers who are really scared about the possibility of, boy, if I stick my head up in a place like New York or in my vocational field and identify as a Christian, 
I know how offensive Jesus is and his claims are, and I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Here's what Jesus says to you. Two things. The first is, yes, you might get heat if you identify with me, but you will never be alone. That's the first thing he says. He says it in verse 19, actually, where he says, At the time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Through you. What does that mean? The Father will be there. When Paul was on trial for his life, he writes about it in 2 Timothy at the very end. Here's what he says. He says, At my first defense... No one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Isn't that amazing? He's on trial for his life, just like this, for his faith. Everybody deserted me, but the Lord was by my side and gave me strength. And you know what? It was enough. It was so much enough that he was able to say to all his friends who had deserted him, May it not be held to your account. It was enough. It was so enough that he didn't even have to be mad at his friends. I had God. And Jesus saying, that's what you've got. If you are hauled up, if you get the heat, not only will be an opportunity for witness, but God will be there. Your Father will be at your side, of course. And that's the first thing you need to know. But here's the second thing, and it's just as important. How can you be sure God will be at your side? And why should he be? considering you haven't, you haven't been there for God over and over again, no matter who you are. I don't care how good a person in general you are, how strong a Christian, you know you haven't always been there for God. Why would God always be there for you? And the answer is, verse 24 and 25, Jesus is basically saying, when persecution comes, think of me. Think of how I've been demonized. Think of how I was called Beelzebub. Think of what, I, what happened to me. Okay, let's go all the way. And here's let's go all the way. At the end of his life, who was with Jesus? Everybody deserted him, right? Everybody deserted him, of course. They denied him. They betrayed him. They ran, just like Paul. But on the cross he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was absolutely alone. There was nobody there. Why not? Because God was giving him the punishment we deserve. He was experiencing the aloneness we should have experienced so that we will never experience that aloneness ourselves. He was giving his life for the sheep. Oh, good shepherd, would you do that for us? Sheep, dumb and dirty, but yes, he did. And because of that, you will never be alone. Persecution, there will always be God there, and it will be enough. Death, when you get to death, you, even if people are around you holding your hands... You face death alone, but no. If Jesus took your aloneness, your exclusion that you deserve, if on the cross he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now you can know that God will never, ever, 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 ever forsake you. And it will be enough. It will be enough. Take these assurances and do the mission that Jesus calls you to. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that uh, now as we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are preparing ourselves for mission, and we ask that you would help us see that and uh, prepare our hearts for it and minister to us now 
and apply these words of this text to our heart. By your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.